Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is made possible by Canvas Pop. Canvas Pop makes it easy for you to turn any photo into a piece of art ready to hang on your wall. They can even turn Instagram and Facebook photos into gorgeous canvas art or custom-framed photo prints. If you're anything like me, photos from fishing trips and experiences can tend to accumulate and get lost in the busyness of day-to-day life. When Canvas Pop reached out to me, I realized a canvas print of my fishing trips would be the perfect way to display my photos. Ordering was incredibly easy. I just went to canvaspop.com where I live chatted with Julie from their customer support team. She walked me through the process, helped me pick what size would work best, as well as the best framing option. I even received a proof of what the print would look like before it was sent to print. So if you're looking for a fabulous gift idea for Christmas, if you order by December 17th, your print will be delivered in time to be unwrapped under the tree. Better still, Canvas Pop is giving all Anchored listeners 50% off orders of $100 or more. Just use the code ANCHORED at checkout, or you can visit www.canvaspop.com. I can't wait to see what you get hung up on your walls. Don't forget to use the hashtag CanvasPopAnchored to show off your masterpiece. Fanny Krieger is an extraordinary woman. On a trip to California, I met with Fanny at her San Francisco home to see if I could learn more about her. I knew she was the widow of famed fly fisherman Mel Krieger, and that I'd gain a better insight into her life with him in fly fishing, but I had no idea just how heart-wrenching the rest of her story is. I'll let her tell you herself here on Anchored. I was born in Paris, France, 
1929, and my birth month is April, April 29, 1929. Were your parents together? Yes. My mother came from province of Romania called Bessarabia then. I think now it's called Moldavia. And my father came from Poland, but they met in Paris, and they got married, and a year and a half, two years later, I was born. My mother was a seamstress, and she sewed beautiful dresses, and my father was uh, was really more of a religious student than anything else, but he started working in a shoe store in Paris, so that was his profession, I suppose you say. And then my mother uh, had a they found the doctors found a spot on her lung and suggested that they should leave Paris and um, go to a mountain area. So they moved to Aix-les-Bains, a town in the Alps, 30 minutes by car from the Swiss border, 30 minutes from Lyon, famous uh, food center, and 30 minutes from Grenoble, which had several years ago, years ago, been the site of the Winter Olympics. Oh. So it, it was, it's a beautiful, very picturesque town, which was famous at first by the English who came for the waters. Uh, they ha- it has uh, natural sulfur springs that uh, doctors use for rheumatism, for oh. arthritis. And people come in for three weeks of a cure, quote-unquote, yeah. to take care of their, uh, of their arthritis. Uh, very famous people have come, and it had a beautiful casino. So it was also very famous as a summer resort, and as well as a winter resort for the ski. And a uh, beautiful town. But my parents were very, very poor and struggled very hard to make a living. What they did was sell clothes in uh, different markets. Every morning, very early in the morning, they would leave by train to go to these different towns, set up uh, like a stand in a market and sell the clothes. So they obviously couldn't take care of me. And so I was, I was then put what in French is called en pension with a family. Here you would probably call it uh, uh, like foster care. Foster care. Foster care. Wow. Did you have siblings, or do you? And then I had a sister who was seven years younger than me. Okay. But I was in foster care from the time I was three years old. What? Until I was ten years old. So I, for me, my, my parents were very, very meaningful, but very rare. I saw them at best once a week. Why did the doctors suggest that your mom went to the mountains instead of... Well, at that time, it was believed that if you had anything with the lung, done with the lungs, you needed better air, purer air than the air of Paris. Did it work? I think it did, because you never had any problems. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so that brings us to you being 10. Were you, were you resentful to your parents? Not resentful, but I cried every time I saw them yeah. because I wanted them to take me with them. Right. Then my little sister was born 
seven years after I was seven. And so she went to a foster care also, but a different one than me. And finally, when I was 10, we finally lived with my parents. And they still were working, but my aunt was with them taking care of us. And then they opened a store in Aix-les-Bains. And that was at the very beginning of the war in 1940. And the store was very successful. And what was very strange was that we lived in a part of France that was not occupied by the Germans. We were supposedly occupied by the Italians, but we never saw them. And so life continued on. For me, it was the most wonderful time of my life because I was back living with my parents, my mother and my father, who were really wonderful human beings. My mother was very active, very energetic, and somewhat ambitious, but she treated me like I was a friend, and she used to say that. She used to say, you are my best friend. It made me feel so good. And my father was a scholarly kind of a man, uh, very quiet, very reserved, but bragged a lot about me. Right. And that made me feel good. Yeah. It made me feel like I was really something special. Right. And so, um, so we didn't uh, had a very normal, very, very wonderful life. And then in 1943, the Germans moved into the unoccupied part of France, and they came to Aix-les-Bains. But we never saw them. We never heard them. Uh, It was like they were not there. But my mother was worried because being Jewish, we had heard all the stories of what the Germans did to the Jews. And so she rented a room in a farm about two miles from the town. And every night with bicycles, we would go to the farm, sleep over, and then in the morning come back to our house. Because it was the presumption that if anything was going to happen from the German, it would be at night. One day, my mother had the visit of a cousin from Paris who stayed over the weekend. So that night, I went to sleep at my aunt's house. And that night, the Germans came to the farmhouse and took my parents and the cousin, my mother, my father, and my sister, who then was seven years old. And I didn't know about it. So next, I went to school from my aunt's house, came back to our apartment. The bicycle was not there. The key was still under the mat. My parents know it's not there. So I couldn't figure out what happened. And then I found out that we went to the farmhouse, my my aunt and I, and the woman said that the German had come that night and taken my mother, my father, my little sister, and the cousin. And then they were sent from Aix-les-Bains. They went to a concentration camp outside of Paris called Drancy. And from Drancy, they went to Auschwitz. And I never heard from them again. But I waited for them to come back. And for two weeks, I was in hiding at a farmhouse because the Germans were looking for me. They knew, they knew that there was another daughter. How old were you? I was 13. So I went to the farmhouse for two weeks, and 
the friends of my father came, who had, they, they had taken me to that farmhouse. They came back and uh, said I couldn't stay there any longer, and I had to decide what I wanted to do. And they gave me several options, but one of them was to try to get into the boarding house of the school uh, where I had been going in Exlibe. And I went to see the headmistress, who was very, very pro-German. And everybody said that you're making a mistake to go back to her. But it wasn't a mistake. Because when she saw me, she said, why didn't you come right away to see me? I'm going to get you an application for you to stay at the boarding school, and I'll take care of you. This was November 1943, and this was the, the time when the German army had invaded Russia, but was stopped in Leningrad, and when that's where the war took a turn, a different turn. And uh, it was my, my thought at the time, still is, that she was trying to have some sort of a protection from having taken care of a Jewish girl in, in case the war turned badly for the Germans and that she would be in trouble for having been so pro-German. And that, in fact, what happened. When the war ended, she was brought to uh, court to be judged. And uh, I was one of the people that testified in her favor. Right. Smart. So she lost her job yeah. and, uh, uh, and, was, and had to leave. Uh, anyway, so several years went by, and I had a very, very close friend about my age whose parents had been very close friends of my parents. But, Fanny, you never saw your parents ever again? No. Did they make it out of there? No. Oh, I just, that's just, I just... A lot of, lot of people went through what I went through. Wow. You know, six million Jews were killed. That, yes, you could have been there. And, yeah, that one night, it could have been me. Wow. And ma- amazing, amazing. So what happened? So this very good friend of my parents, these very good friends of my parents arranged for me to come to America. So when I finally got the visa and the papers and everything, I was 17 years old. I came to America thinking, if it didn't work, I can always go back. But if it worked, it was worth trying. So I lived in New York, and my father had seven cousins, first cousins. Uh, Their father was my grandfather's brother. And he came to America first and had a wife with seven children left in the little town where my grandfather lived. And my grandfather took care of them. So that woman always said, we owe our life to this man. We will always be grateful for what he did for us. So my friend's mother went to see one of the the, I think the oldest brother, and told him that they had to make papers for me to come to America. And he dragged his feet, dragged his feet. And then one day, 
she found out that he was in the hospital with a heart attack. He was 44 years old. And she went to see him and in the hospital, and she said to him, this is a punishment from God because you didn't make papers for that girl that was left of your whole family that was left in France. And if you don't make papers, you're not going to survive this. I mean, she really went for him. <laughs> so he got better, made papers, and lived to be 84 years old. Oh. No, I'm not sure that you need all that detail. I love it. You want to hear more of those details? All of it. I want to hear everything. It's fascinating. So I moved to New York. This is 1947. And I stayed for one year with the family, that cousin who had made the papers for me, and his wife and a daughter my age. And that was not a good year. He was very nice, but I never saw him. She was not very nice, and neither were her daughter, who was my age. And they told me right away I had to go look for a job. That's the fun part. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I went to look for a job. This is January. I went to a personal agency, and they said, oh, that's, yeah, yeah, we, that's what we do. We find you a job. But you don't speak English very well. You don't know anything about typing. You don't know anything about shorthand. You don't speak well enough to be in sales. So I don't know what kind of job we could find you. I said, okay, thank you very much. This was Rockefeller Center in, in New York. So I went down and started walking down the street and thinking, what am I going to do? It, everything she said was true. I had never seen a typewriter. I don't know anything about shorthand. My English was so-so. And then I saw the sign Air France. That's the French airline. Of course. So I went there and went to the personnel department, and they said, we don't hire in January. This is 1947. Maybe I had five planes going back and forth. That was it. Getting ready to leave because they don't have a job for me. When the phone rings, and it's the big, big boss of the entire Air France office in in New York, who called because his secretary hadn't showed up, and he needed a big aircraft parts box to be typed in three copies to be sent back to France. So the personnel met, sent me up there. I went to the 13th floor to be interviewed. And once again, the guy said, well, can you type? And I said, no. <laughs> Did you take shorthand? No. He said, but it's okay. Just sit down and type that book. Three copies. I looked at the typewriter and I thought, what is this? What do I do? Where do I start? Three copies. How do I make three copies? So he, he, he was facing me. His desk was facing the desk of the secretary. So he called the woman who showed me how to put the, the carbon copy and then how to put it in the roll of the type, typewriter. <laughs> and I typed. I typed the whole book of aircraft parts, and it's like, you know, XYZ678. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> but somehow I survived. Yeah. And worked five years at Air France, moved up to become head of a section. The big boss, who was kind of the tough guy, and nobody liked him. And I was the only one that he called by my first name. And I think he felt like he was a father to me. Right. You know, he was 
molding me to be. And he pushed me through all the steps to become a, a more experienced and head of a department and all that. So five years wow. at Air France. I didn't know that. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> knows that. It's <laughs> awesome. Fanny, is your, what is your first name? Is your first name Fanny? Yeah, that's the your, only name. That's the only name. It's not short for something. No. Fanny, is that, but it's not French. Well, a famous, famous writer wrote three books, one of which I think is, well, I don't know if one of them is called Fanny, but the heroine in the three books is Fanny. And my mother claimed that she'd read it in, a, in a, an English book, wherever it comes from. And she named you Fanny. Fanny was my name. What was your maiden name? Bienstock. Oh, wow. Okay. Got it. <laughs> so what happens after your five years with Air France? Uh, then I worked for the Belgian airline for about three years. And I worked for um, Sabina. That was the name. And and then I decided that I had had enough of New York. So I had a great aunt who lived in Shreveport, Louisiana. Oh, she, wow. <laughs> she was in her 80s, and he was in his 90s, and I think he had Alzheimer or dementia or something. Right. Anyway, I stayed there for one year with them. They were very sweet people, but for a 22-year-old to live with a 90-year-old So I became very good friend with another French girl whose parents also had been taken, who had moved to Marshall, Texas. And I became very good friends with her. And the two of us decided to move to Houston. What was your personality like? Were you well-behaved? Were you a troublemaker? I was shy. Okay. I didn't speak easily. So I didn't make connection very easily with uh, with potential boyfriends. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out very well. <laughs> and um, at the same time, I I was not exactly a wallflower in in the sense that I I knew what I wanted to do and I did it. I I never was uh, held back because I didn't know something. If I didn't know something, I had to find out what it was and go for it, if that's what I wanted to do. So when Denise suggested that we move to Houston, I said, sure, why not? So two French girls. Two French girls moved to Houston. (laughs) They took took an apartment, and I went to work for five years, about five years, at the French consulate in Houston. It was kind of a big shop there. (laughs) <laughs> I thought, anyway, <laughs> I thought I was. And uh, then I worked for, the again, the Belgian consulate uh, for a few years. But in between time, I met Mel. Uh, I met him through a, another friend. And uh, it was kind of like a blind date, I guess you'd call it. And he was, he was very reserved. But he loved talking books. Ah. And he played a really good game of tennis. Okay. He talked about that. So Denise and I decided, well, maybe we should learn to play tennis. <laughs> you were in your 20s? Yeah, I was 23, 24. Was, is he, was he a lot older than you were? No, no. He Same just age? a year. Not even a year. Okay, this is I, so cute. <laughs> born in April. He was born in 
the next uh, August. Yeah. And so uh, we met, and then one day he asked me if I wanted to go fishing. I said, fishing? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> so we went on the Gulf with another friend of his and me, and he was putting shrimp on my line, and I was catching fish, and he was taking the fish off, putting more shrimp and catching fish. He spent the whole day putting shrimp on my line and, and really taking off the fish that I was catching. He never got to fish. And so we, we went out together for a couple years before he decided we should get married. But we got married, and we had some very, very good friends who lived from San Francisco who came to open a marble shop in Houston. They stayed there for one year. They had two, two daughters, same age as my kids. So we decided to move to San Francisco. But what really decided Mel to move to San Francisco was the Golden Gate Casting Club. He wanted to learn to fly fish. He hadn't fly fish before, he was just, and he became avid fly fisherman, avid. I mean, all day long, that's all he could think of and do. And he'd be practicing his casting in front of a mirror. <laughs> then he got into tying flies, really. And then Fenwick started fly fishing school. They had uh, the Lanka Gazette that Mel was reading uh, avidly. And when they started the school, Mel became an instructor. Uh-huh. And then when Fenwick gave up the schools, uh, they said, you can do your own school. Again, thank you to Canvas Pop for making this episode possible. Made in America, all Canvas Pop prints are hand-stretched by their expert craftsmen in their American production facility. What better Christmas gift for the special people in your life than a printed memory of a cherished moment or fish? Don't miss out. Canvas Pop is giving all Anchored listeners 50% off orders of $100 or more. Just use the code Anchored at checkout or visit canvaspop.com. Was this his full-time job? Yeah. What, what were you doing? Uh, at that time, I worked here for about one year. No, not even one year because I couldn't few months at a visa service okay. and I kept thinking I've worked at the French consulate I've worked at the Belgian consulate I know all about visas I'm going to open my own visa service and I did oh so he went into fly fishing and you opened your own business and yeah. visas wow okay and I was working out of the we were renting an apartment a few blocks from here I was working doing visas and being in touch with travel agents who sent me their, their request. And it became one of the top visa service. There was, a, there was another one in Washington, at the, one or two in Washington. But I had an agent working for me in Washington, and I got visas from travel agents from all over the country. And we had a lot of consulates here. I had that business for 35 years. Wow. And that's really what kept Kept us going. I was going to say, it sounds like you put some food on the table. <laughs> it kept us going. Yeah. And um, and we had two kids, a girl and a boy. And Mel became more and more and more involved in, in the casting and in the teaching. He loved the teaching. Yeah. 
and he loved talking about the casting and analyzing all every aspect of the casting. And a Japanese company asked him to write a story, one story per month. Not a story, but a thing about like casting. A column or something? Yeah. yeah. A month. Well, at the end of the month, I said, Mel, this, maybe if you put the, the 12 reports together, that could be a book. And that's what he did. He got, he started, he started writing. Oh. So that became the first book. Then everybody started knowing about him. Right. We had our own school. And everybody at the school, in fact, what I was doing was administrating the school, setting up a place where we could have the schools, arranging for the food, the lodging. And he did his thing, which was teaching. But he had a way about him that people just loved him. You know, everywhere, every, everybody just loved him. And um, at one point, several people came to him and said, why don't you organize a trip somewhere? We'll come with you. And that was the first thing that we did. We, 1971, no, 1967, we went to New Zealand. Oh, on a hosted trip. And hosted, started hosting trip there. But we had the first program, people-to-people program. We called it Anglo-to-Anglo. When somebody wanted to go to New Zealand, we set them up with a family in New Zealand who had access to fishing. Very successful program. How did you find people? This is before the Internet. Yeah, well... uh, we found a woman, uh, first it was a man who was our agent, and he would find the families where we could, uh, that would take guests yeah. and take them fishing. And, and we arranged it no more than one week per house. So if, if anybody wanted to go for three weeks fishing in New Zealand, we had it one week in the North Island for, um, with a guest host family and two weeks maybe in the South Island with two different host families. No more than one week at a time. Very successful. People that went loved it. People who received them loved them because they started traveling back and forth. So we did that for 10, 15 years. Really, really good. And then in 1971, tourist office for uh, uh, Aerolinius Argentina uh, for the Argentine government, asked if we wanted to try the same thing in Argentina. So we went to Argentina, but it wasn't going to work that way. The distances were much too great. We started taking groups ourselves to Argentina and went fishing here and there. And then Mel started giving seminars, casting seminars in Argentina. And there, everybody knows the name. Yeah, they do. <laughs> there in Argentina, they do. The visa service was growing. The children were growing. Mel got more and more involved into all the travel. And uh, we went to Chile. We went to Scandinavia. Spent a lot of time in Norway, Sweden. Uh, went to Japan. Because he was very much in demand for casting seminars. Mm-hmm. And I tagged along. Were you starting to learn how to teach by watching him? 
Did that interest you? Yes, I spent a, I mean I spent a lot of time at the schools. So I I became kind of part of it, but not too much. It wasn't it it didn't feel right for me to be involved with my husband's doing. That was his thing. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So but I went there. I, I was at all the school. We went to on all the trips and that's where I grew into who I am now. At what point did you look at all of this and think, I'm going to put something together for women? Yes. Very early in my actual fishing time, career, I realized there were not that many women. So a very good friend of mine, her husband, had invite, they had invited us for dinner. And during that evening, in the dinner conversation, we were saying, there must be some other women out there who fly fish. You know, how do, we, how do we find out about that? So I said, let's have a party. Let's send it. Because I had a big database of people who had fly fish uh, come to the schools and come on travel with us. I had that database. I said, let me see if, how many women I can find who, whose husband fly fish from the Bay Area. I found 21, and I said, let's send them an invitation, which we did, and let's see how many come. And I said to Susan, if six come, that's a success. 21 came. (laughs) And we had some big names. Right. We had Evie Haas from the jean company, you know, and uh, a couple of women who had written a book, Wait a Little Deeper, Dear, that was a fly, one of the first fly fishing books. They were all excited. They said, this is so wonderful. Let's, let's start a club and let's meet. Let's go fishing together. Yeah. And that's what we wanted, yes. <laughs> so um, we started the club that was called it the Golden West Women Fly Fisher. And before we knew it, we had over 100 members. And it, it, the word just kept spreading. They, we didn't all 100 meet, but we met once a month here at my house. I had these meetings for years. So then at one point I thought, why don't we enlarge this idea, include more of the women? So we sent, I sent out 300 invitations. John Wolfe, Maggie Merriman, all the people I could think of that were involved. And uh, this was in... 1996, and uh, 300 women showed up. Here? Well, no, (laughs) no. We, what what I did is I got the Golden West women to host people that came in who wanted to stay at another woman's life, Fisher. Some wanted to stay in hotels, but uh, we had rented a building we had an incredible meeting. It was so enthusiastic. So many women, I mean, they were almost like crying. Um, the women who started uh, Casting for Recovery mm-hmm. came there and talked about it. This, it hadn't become Casting for Recovery yet. It was in the process. And they had a ready audience. And we had writers. I wish I could remember all the names, but I have the list. Uh, we had artists, 
we had a woman who did beautiful tapestry and a lot of the writers. And we had the store owners, lodge owners, and it was just, there was just such an incredible, uh, John Wolfe said at the banquet that last night, she had waited all her life for this to happen. It just was, it was very emotional, really. So we decided, well, let's make a club out of this too. So this became the International Women Fly Fishers. Which is still in existence today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, then my son one day called from Bozeman. He says, Mom, there's an ad in the paper about a woman who wants to start a fly fishing club in Bozeman. Do you know anything about that? I said, no, but is there a phone number? So I called. And that was the owner of the fly fishing uh, store in Bozeman, the Bozeman Angler. Okay. And I called her. And I said, I, I'm so excited that you're putting an ad to want to start a fly fishing club. Uh, how'd you get this idea? She says, I came to your international woman fly fisher last year or the year before, whatever it was. And I got so inspired that I wanted to do the same. Oh. And I don't know, at that time, I don't know how many women fly fishing clubs there were. Maybe two or three in the country. When we started the Golden West, when we started the International, there might have been more. But that was the big expansion of women's place in the fly fishing world. It became a, a really a, a very interesting and serious issue. Fly fishing stores started to uh, hire women sales. Manufacturers all of a sudden were going about building rods for women, building waders and wading shoes for women. It was all over the place. And when we went out fishing, at first the guys would look at us, the guys who were fishing, like, what's going on? And pretty soon, we were accepted. And more and more and more women got into, the, into the, this world of fly fishing. It was very exciting, very interesting. I, I think that maybe, maybe the fact that catch and release was taking hold so that it, it wasn't a bloody sports anymore, that may be part of it. But I think this was also the time where everything became more open to women. No, that sounds right. Everything. What did Mel think of all of this? Oh, he loved it. He, he thought, did. yeah, yeah, he was very supportive. I talked to Mike Lawson before I started it. I talked to Mike Lawson. He said, what a wonderful idea. Uh, Mike uh, Fong at the time, long dead now. I talked to everybody that was in the industry. What's the name of the, the guy that was uh, the main editor of Fly Fisherman magazine, which was a big, big um, magazine at the time? Before Ross Purnell? Yeah. John Randolph. That's what it, yep. John Randolph. Yep. Very supportive. Everybody, everybody thought, what a good idea. Yeah. And from this nucleus, it just grew. I think there are now over 50 women's fly fishing club in the United oh, States. They're, they're everywhere. What's your involvement today? What are you doing today? Not I mean, much. I feel really silly asking somebody in Not their much. 80s that. You shouldn't be doing much. <laughs> Not much. I just came back from 
fishing trip to the yeah. eastern Sierras, and uh, I realized that my level of energy, which has been very high, uh-huh. is not so high anymore. And that's, <laughs> that's a little loud. that's a little frustrating. I mean, I I don't want to have to come down, but I think I'm going to have to accept that. It, it the energy isn't quite there as much as it was, and it's okay. That's that's the cycle of life. What do I do now? I've gotten involved. Last year, we had a really serious, good program of fly casting instruction for wounded woman warriors. It was very exciting. The gals who came and helped with the casting uh, were very excited about it. But for some reason, this year, they have not renewed. They have not shown any more interest. We, at the end of the casting sessions uh, last year, we took them fishing. Not much happened there. But we had about 12 women. They came once a month with the bus from Palo Alto, the veterans' hospital. It was very rewarding, very, very nice. When you and I were chatting earlier before we rolled the microphone, you explained that your son works in education. Did he ever pick up the flag? I mean, something we haven't really addressed here is, is Mel unfortunately passed away nine, year, mm-hmm. nine years ago. What did, he, what did he pass away from, Fanny? He had brain cancer. Oh, okay. I forgot the name of it, Mel. Did it happen fast? Very fast. Okay. He he ended up being in the hospital for two and a half months because they didn't know what he had. They didn't pick up the the cancer until the last week. Did your son ever decide he wanted to pick up the torch and get into fly fishing? Oh, he does. He fishes a lot. Does he do any of the the fly fishing stuff with his educational program? No. Mel was incredibly outgoing and... um, Love to teach, and he he projected that love in such a way that everybody really uh, were inspired. You yeah. know, he had a he had a way uh, about his teaching, and he created the certified program. He created the master certified program. His next idea was a fly fishing university. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> was very involved with the Federation, too. Well, it sounds like you picked up a lot of this, too, and enrolled with it. Just, you know, when he, after he died, I decided that I would at least make fishing trips and bring women with me. And that has been very successful. I, it's, it's not a matter of money-making proposition. It's more that... When I'd like to go somewhere, I put uh, I put out the word. I want to go here. Anybody wants to come with me? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I get little groups. This year we went to the Big Horn. Uh-huh. We were thirteen people. Oh wow! Too many. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so if somebody... but it's fun. It's fun because it's. I always get back to being with people that I have something in common that we share the same ideas and ideals, I think that's what keeps me young. Yeah. If somebody wants to reach out to you to go on one of these trips, where do they go? How do they find you? I have a website. And that is? Well, you can do it fannykrieger.com 
or mailkrieger.com. Yep. And it comes to kriegerflyfishing.com. That's how I found, well, I, I mean, obviously found you other ways, but I was looking up your website today. It's excellent. So mm-hmm. I will put all of those links on. And my the, email address is fannykrieger at mac, mac.com. Perfect. So I'll put all of that up. Um, well, I just am absolutely flabbergasted. Your story is so interesting. I was really nervous about interviewing you and getting hung up in Mel's story, but the, the, just there was no way that was going to happen. Your story is, is just incredible. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 